I have the great task of trying to teach my way through the entire chapter of Exodus 2. I'm going to start by asking, who am I? This is an existential question, right? It's a question of, who do I see myself as? Who do other people see me as, right? This is often a question that all of us, if not all of us, many of us in this room have asked ourselves at some point, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose, right? Now, in the book uh, of Les Miserables, the main character, the protagonist of the story, Jean Valjean, struggles with this same question. And he struggles with this because of the identity that is placed upon him by others, right? He's a thief, a prisoner, a slave. He tries to overcome this and change who he is and how people see him over time as you work your way through the story. Um, but he spends his whole life running from his past, and as tragedy after tragedy occur throughout his life, his past is pursuing him through the government. So, I like musicals. I don't know if you guys like musicals. But the musical rendition of this story, which is really fun, um, in the beginning, it starts out with Jean Valjean singing a song, Who Am I? And the conclusion that he comes to and the culmination is he decides, I am 24601. This is his prisoner identification number. His identification, his identity resides within the number given to him by the government, declaring him as a thief, a prisoner, and a slave. He becomes nothing more than a numerical value to those around him. He cannot see that he is any more than that of a number and a long list of criminals that have come before him and that will come after him. Now he goes on throughout his life again, trying to run from this reality, trying to recreate who he is, uh, trying to change his life, and he gets many opportunities to do that. But the idea is it's constantly there. Now, our identity in reality rests in the eyes of God. Like Jean Valjean and each of us, Moses had a struggle with his identity, and we find it in Exodus chapter 2. We see Moses the way that Moses sees himself. And this is important because in order for us to understand the rest of the context of Exodus, we have to understand who Moses is, not just who Moses is, but how Moses sees himself, and in contrast, how, how God sees Moses, right? And how others see Moses as time progresses. But what we're going to focus on is, who did Moses see himself as in this text, and why is that important? <clears throat> so there's a lot going on in Exodus chapter 2. Uh, I could do an entire sermon series on this one chapter. So I'm going to attempt to provide what I call a digestible source of biblical sustenance 
without losing the flavor or nutrients of this text. Um, now, to get where we're going, we have to know where we've been and where we've been in the past. So last Sunday, Pastor Jason preached uh, the end of Exodus chapter 1 um, that had Pharaoh declaring to the Egyptian people that they are to kill male children and throw them in the Nile, right? Take all of the Hebrew male children, they're to be thrown in the Nile and killed. And now we find Moses, right? A male Hebrew child who's supposed to be thrown in the Nile River. But he doesn't get thrown in the Nile River. So we have to understand that the people, the, the Hebrew people right now, are not just themselves suffering persecution, but their children are equally suffering the persecution. There's only so much they can do to protect themselves, but they're in such precarious positions that it warrants extreme decisions on their part to not only protect their own life, but to protect the life of those who are in their care, their children. And as we're going through Exodus chapter 2, there's three unique and very important events uh, that take place so that we can understand the person of Moses better as we prepare for the rest of Exodus. We must know who Moses is in order to understand the context of what's going on throughout Exodus. Moses, Moses is a major character even today within Jewish tradition. They recognize him as the deliverer, right? Did Moses recognize himself as the deliverer at this time, right? Is that, is that who he is? Is that how he sees himself? Is that how God saw him? In Exodus chapter 2, from verse 1 through 25, contains 80 years of time. That's an entire lifetime for us, potentially, right? Um, but Moses goes on to live an additional 40 years after this. But the idea is that we're encountering Moses, and it, spent, it spends just one short chapter talking about his, the majority of his life. It goes from him being born, him being nursed, returned to the Egyptian household, raised as an Egyptian, and then finally, at the end, he is married and he has a son. <clears throat> it's a lot of time. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, and you can turn here if you'd like, Stephen gives an account of what is going on for Moses in Exodus. He gives context to the understanding of the time that passes during Moses' life in slightly more detail as Jewish tradition would have been taught. And in verse 20 of Acts chapter 7, Stephen says this, It was at this time that Moses was born. And he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. 
But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind or heart to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. So Stephen gives us a little bit more context as to what's going on for Moses here. Moses seeks to know his people at age 40. So he's brought up as an Egyptian for 40 years, and in adulthood, he goes and seeks to know his people. And then he's rejected and flees to Midian. He then spends another 40 years in Midian before returning to Egypt. Because we know in Exodus 7, 25, that Moses was 80 years old when he first spoke to the king of Egypt before the first plague takes place. Additionally, Moses is still in his 80th year when he leads the Israelites out of Egypt. And then they spend 40 years in the wilderness wandering, and he dies at the age of 120 without entering the land. There are three major events that take place in Exodus chapter 2. The first event is Moses being born into two opposing cultures. The second event is that he is fleeing from something that he has done, and it being the murder of an Egyptian. He's fleeing from sin. Rightfully so, he would have been killed. But the idea is that he's running away. And lastly, the third major event is a realization and an understanding of his identity based on his life. First, Moses is born into a confusion of culture. Verses 1 through 10 tell us that Moses' birth and being raised by two cultures and traditions living in opposition with each other. This is a child that was supposed to be killed. His mother chose to hide him from the Egyptian people for three months. It's interesting that the Acts account mentions his father when the Exodus account says nothing of his father. After hiding him for three months, eventually his parents, in my understanding, seem like they hatched some sort of a plan to try to protect him and preserve his life. Because remember, these people are in extreme situations that warrant extreme decisions to try to protect the lives of not only themselves, but their descendants. Eventually, they had to plan. Because the king, at the time, the pharaoh, had commanded all male children to be thrown into the Nile. Now he's been alive for three months, and okay, what do we do? So they did just that. 
They put him in the Nile. Now, they did it a little differently, but the idea is that they weren't really not throwing their child in the Nile. <laughs> they were just doing it safely. <laughs> so, he's then found by an Egyptian, and not even, not just any Egyptian, an Egyptian of royalty, right? Pharaoh's daughter. When she finds him, she recognizes that he is a Hebrew child, and to be honest, it's probably not a surprise to her that he's a Hebrew. Now, it's probably a surprise to her that he's alive. It probably wasn't the first time that she saw a Hebrew child in the Nile, but it was probably the first time that she witnessed a living Hebrew child in the Nile. After this, he's returned to his mother, and she becomes his wet nurse until around likely the age of three or four years old. Um, culturally, um, infant mortality was very high in ancient Egyptian times, uh, in the ancient Near East in general, and in order to preserve the life of children, they often nursed them much longer because it would help their immune system acclimate to what was going on and help their digestive system and things like that so that they would not die of illness um, or the environment. So the longer they were nursed, the longer they lived generally. So it was common practice to nurse children until around the age of three or four, and then it was also common practice for especially Egyptian royalty to hire Hebrew wet nurses to nurse their children for them um, so that they could go about, go about living their life. Eventually they were returned, and at this point, in verse 10, it says, the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, his mom being the one who brought him, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, and said, because I drew him out of the water. Now the name given to Moses in Hebrew, the name of the word is Moshe. The interesting thing about this is it's not actually Hebrew. This is an Egyptian name. It's an Egyptian word that's transliterated into Hebrew. This is, mind you, an Egyptian who is naming him, not a Hebrew. So when she names him Moshe, what she's naming him is a name that is absent of identity. There's a lot of Egyptian loan words, or what are referred to as Egyptian loan words in the text of Exodus. Uh, this, it would be one of those words. Pharaoh is another one of those words. In Hebrew, it's, you know, it's pronounced paharo, but it's not actually a Hebrew word. It's an Egyptian word that's transliterated into Hebrew, uh, simply meaning king. Pharaoh simply means king in Egyptian. Um, and as you read through the Hebrew text, you'll notice that sometimes they use the Hebrew word for king, which is melech, and they'll say uh, melech Mitzrayim, which is king of Egypt. Or sometimes they'll just say paharo, which also just means king of Egypt. It, there's two different ways that they do it. But the idea is that there's words that are Egyptian words that are in the Hebrew text that are transliterated, and the name of Moses, Moshe, is an Egyptian word. Why is that important? It's important because Moses is found in the Nile River by an Egyptian. And when he's found in the Nile River by an Egyptian, 
He's given a name that has no belonging. The word Moshe, as a noun, simply just means child. No gender ascribed to it, simply child. Now, if it were to be a verb, it would mean to give birth or to bear children. But in this context, it's a noun because it's a, it's a proper name. It's a name that has been given to him. So Pharaoh's daughter names Moses' child in Egyptian. Any Egyptian hearing that would understand that not only is he not really Egyptian, because in Egyptian culture and practice, especially in royalty, your name was carried through your father. She doesn't know his father. She doesn't know where he came from, right? She just simply found him in the Nile River, and she gives him a name accordingly. It's important because this name strips Moses of any identity that he may have had from his family or from his Hebrew lineage. The idea is that she knows he's Hebrew, but she wants him to be Egyptian. So she gives him an Egyptian name that also stains him with the understanding that he does not belong anywhere. He has no familial, familial connections to anyone else within where he's being raised. And he also understands, and the Egyptians would understand hearing his name, that he does not belong there. <clears throat> In Hebrews eleven twenty three, it says that, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God. And I can only imagine why this is. There's multiple reasons. One, he felt drawn to the people because he knew he didn't belong. He knew he wasn't Egyptian. And he probably felt persecution from the Egyptians knowing that he had no patrilineal heritage. Didn't know who his father was. He knew who his mother was, but that's all. Moses was stripped of his identity by the Egyptians, by Pharaoh's daughter. He had no father or household that was known by Pharaoh's daughter. She gave him a name fitting of a child with no father. Moses is given a name absent of identity, and he is simply named child. He begins his life as one who has no belonging. He grows up in a household where he does not belong, and he knows this. This is the first major event in the understanding of Moses' identity. The second event, Moses kills an Egyptian and runs. And he spent his whole childhood trying to understand who he is and feeling like an outsider in an Egyptian household. Acts chapter 7, again, it tells us he was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. He did everything he could. He was taught everything he needed to be taught in order for him to fully be Egyptian, in order for him to understand and identify as an Egyptian. He had everything he needed. But he knew he wasn't. And he was probably regularly told that he wasn't by those within his sphere of influence. And he bears an Egyptian name that identifies him as one with no family. Moses is an outsider to the Egyptians. And by being raised as an Egyptian for 40 years, he becomes an outsider to the Hebrews, his very own people. He's alone. Now in Acts chapter 7, again, it tells us that it entered his heart or his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. 
Moses reaches out. He attempts to be the deliverer, as it says in Acts, of the people, of his people. He kills an Egyptian to save a Hebrew. He attempts to find belonging with his Hebrew brothers, but again, but again he finds that he sadly is not welcome. He tries to stop these very Hebrews that he saved from fighting amongst themselves, and they rebuke him in verse 14. They said to him, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses, attempting to be the deliverer of his people, attempting to free them from the oppression and bondage, is not met with open arms. He's pushed away by his very own people. He has first grown up knowing that he doesn't belong there, and now he is rejected by his own people that he's trying to relate to. And he flees. And he must flee for his life. Killing an Egyptian is punishable by death. That's just the way it works. So he has to run. But the idea is that he's running not only from persecution and potential death, but he's also running from sin that he committed, right? Running from the identity that he does not have, the identity that he doesn't understand. He doesn't know who he is. He's searching for that. And at age of 40, Moses runs from his sin. He's guilty of murder and the shame that comes with it, and he flees. And I just want to ask real quick, if anybody in here today has sinned, raise your hand. And we know from Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So whether you know you have or not, it's happened. That's a reality. Now, it's not about whether we have or have not sinned. Scripture is clear that we have all sinned. It's about how we react when our sin is made public. And for the believer, specifically, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins, what do we do? Do we confront our sin? Do we ask for forgiveness, both from God and from potentially others that we have sinned against? Do we reconcile our differences with our brothers and sisters? taking responsibility for our actions, or do we react differently, similar to Moses, potentially? How often do we run away from our sin? We run away from the things we don't understand. It comes about in different ways. It could be blaming others, saying, well, this person, this person sinned against me, so I, naturally I had to do this. They did this, so I have to do it. They forced my hand. It's their fault. Blaming others to justify our sinful actions. It could be actually running away from people when our sin is exposed. When someone comes to the knowledge of some area where we have sinned and they approach us about it, trying to reconcile, seek forgiveness, help us process through it, and they run away from it. Hiding from our sin and pretending like it never happened. How often does this happen? Well, if nobody knows about it, and I just pretend that it, happened, that it didn't happen, Eventually, I'll forget about it. No one else will find out. The Lord will forget about it. That's not how it works, right? We can't hide from these things. They must be addressed. We must ask for forgiveness. All of these things are responses rooted in our flesh and ways that we run away from our sin. Now, in verse 15, Moses finds himself in Midian, and this is where we get into uh, the focus 
of this morning. And it's our third major event that closes out the chapter and leading into pretty much the rest of Exodus. Moses is now living as an alien in a foreign land. He's encountered by the daughters of, Midian, uh, of a Midian priest, Reuel. They're shepherdesses. He waters their flock. They report back to their father that an Egyptian saved them. Not only did, they save, not only did he save them, but he watered their flock as well. Moses is then invited to dinner. One thing leads to another. Now he's married and having kids. At least that's what the text says. There's probably a time gap there. But you get the idea. So in verse 21 and 22, we find how Moses identifies himself and how he views himself, not just currently, but I think based on his past. The first, at this point, I think he's had a son now. I, my guess would be he'd probably be close to 60, 70 years old because not short after he encounters the Lord being a shepherd, which he's 80 at that point. Verse 21 and 22, Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The truth of the statement goes deeper than it seems. First, what does it mean to be a sojourner? <clears throat> the idea behind that is the reason for naming his son Gersham is it's actually a compound Hebrew word, ger and sham, put together. Ger meaning alien, sojourner, foreigner. Sham meaning there. So he was a sojourner there, as in he's actually naming him his son somebody who does not belong where he is. And then he follows up and said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Same word, sojourner, translated there, uh, is the, the Hebrew verb ger. This word is often translated as sojourner or alien, uh, sometimes foreigner, depending on your translation. Um, but this doesn't fully communicate the implications behind the word, right? Um, not a lot of us, when people, when we think about what a sojourner is, it's kind of somebody who wanders around traveling. But the idea is there's so much more behind it. It's uh, a, so a ger, it, it identifies a person usually as a man uh, that is alone, at least in the Hebrew text. A man that is alone uh, has left his village or his tribe uh, due to a number of things. Famine could be one reason. Uh, in Moses' case, blood guilt. He left because of blood guilt. War is another reason that people are referred to as sojourners. They have lost their tribe due to war, or they are fleeing from participating in war. And this person loses all their rights. Not only do they lose their rights in, from that they had in the community that they were in, but they don't obtain new rights by living within a new community. They're an outsider and remain an outsider. This is very tribal practice. It's common in tribal societies in the ancient Near East. The easiest way to describe a ger in modern understanding, I think, is a gypsy. If anybody's familiar with gypsies, they're, they are a people group that 
is predominantly in Europe and Asia and the Middle East, but they're all of the same people group. But a gypsy has no place to call home. The government doesn't recognize them as being legitimate people. They have no identity. They have no government identification cards. They cannot have a job. They cannot own property. They do not have rights. In addition to that, the government doesn't even want them in their country, and they're trying to get rid of them constantly. But that's the basic of idea of what a gear would be, is a gypsy, a wanderer, somebody who really doesn't have a place to call home, somebody that doesn't have a belonging, but somebody who's an outcast, somebody who's alone. <clears throat> and this is, this is how Moses chooses to identify himself as a wanderer, a stranger. Now, after Moses has lived over half of his life, he identifies himself as one who does not belong. The reality of the situation is that Moses has always, his whole life, been one who does not belong. He's always been an alien in a foreign land. It may have looked differently, he was a Hebrew raised in an Egyptian household until the age of 40. He had a name that labeled him as one who has no family of origin. When he tried to find his identity with his tribe, they rejected him as one who does not belong. He now finds himself in a foreign land still as an outsider. Moses remains a sojourner or an outsider, or a wanderer for the rest of his life, 120 years. After this point, he then wanders in the wilderness with the people he really doesn't know. And then after wandering, he dies in the wilderness, never having entered the land promised to his fathers. Moses is born to be an alien in a foreign land. That's who he was meant to be. That is the way that God designed it. Because as we read through the rest of Exodus, it allows God to tell Moses who he actually is. That he belongs to the Lord. That he's not an Egyptian. That he's not a Midianite. But he's the one that God chose to use to deliver his people. He was chosen by God to be a stranger in a foreign land. Because with that comes an openness and a humility and an understanding that he does not have belonging anywhere other than with the Lord. When God comes to him, he, he sees himself as someone who equally does not belong in the Lord's presence. But God comes to him, lifts him up, and encourages him, and tells him who he's meant to be. <clears throat> Moses is what's referred to as a type of Christ. Jesus, like Moses, was a foreigner in a strange land. He was God in the flesh. 
who came down and dwelt with us, with his creation. Jesus was born to be an alien because like Moses, he belonged to God. Not only did Jesus belong to God, but he was God. Jesus became a foreigner so that we would not have to endure the punishment that he did and could be welcomed into God's kingdom. We were born foreigners and aliens apart from God. But if we choose to believe in the finished work of Christ, Ephesians says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. As believers, we are no longer strangers to God, but now become like Christ, as strangers to the ways of the world. We don't belong here. Our identity is no longer American, Wisconsinite, Packer fan. We are children of God, first, foremost, full stop. We don't belong here. Our residence is in heaven. We're strangers in a foreign land as the people of God. We are wandering representatives of the Lord. As a believer, I want to encourage you. Know who you are. Know that your identity is with Christ. Know that the church is your family. This is where you belong. Look around right now and say hello <laughs> to the people that you're going to spend the rest of your existence with. You better learn to love these people because they're not going to go away for eternity. This is why we don't run from our sins. We confess, we, can, we forgive, and we reconcile with our brothers and sisters because like us, they belong to the Lord. Now, if you don't consider yourself a Christian or someone who knows Christ or a follower of Jesus, know this. The hard work is already done. Jesus gave his life for you. And as the church... We're here, standing before you, sitting amongst you, waiting for you to accept that work. And we're here with arms open, saying, come on over. Your family is waiting for you. Because you don't belong here. You belong to the Lord. We were created to belong to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Uh, we thank you for the work that your son has done uh, so that we can know you, that we can have a relationship with you, that we can live eternally with you, that any struggle or hardship that we go through here uh, in this life, this temporary life, 
know that it's part of not belonging. We are meant to be with you. You desire us to be with you, and we want to be with you, Lord. We thank you. We love you. And we pray that we seek to forgive. We seek to confess. And we don't flee from our sins, but embrace the reality that you are a forgiving God. And if only we seek you, reconciliation will be had, and we can join with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.